Let's value the Australian way this Easter at Coles. And to help make your Easter shopping easier, we've added thousands of extra home delivery windows and thousands of extra click and collect windows. Shop online at coles.com.au. Millions of despairing men, women and little children, victims of a system that makes men torture and imprison innocent people. You cannot shake hands with a clenched fist. Produced by a nuclear exchange would be carried by wind and water and soil and seed to the far corners of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. We're not saying that planet Earth is coming to an end. We're saying that planet Earth is about to be refurbished, spaded under, and have another chance to serve as a garden for another civilization. Most of the people in here are just your reflections. They're your mistakes. 1776 will commence again if you try to take our firearms. One million of the planet's eight million species are threatened. You are what you repeatedly do. Therefore, excellence ought to be a habit, not an act. Your lives and the credibility of the United Nations is at stake. Epstein didn't kill himself. The reason this is such an interesting time is not only because we're on the threshold of the end of this civilization. They're trying to take you out with bullshit. The experience of the past two years has proven beyond doubt that no nation can appease the Nazis. To those who can hear me, I say, do not despair. The misery that is now upon us is but the passing of greed, the bitterness of men who fear the way of human progress. The hate of men will pass and dictators die, and the power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. In the language of the US Department of Defense, these are unidentified aerial phenomena. Roswell's a very interesting place with a lot of people that would like to know what's going on. Uh, there is very compelling evidence that we, uh, we may not be alone. This is the Garden of Doom. Welcome everyone to Garden of Doom, and this week we're welcoming back in Emery Potter, who was our guest episode 64, where we talked about British science fiction. Well, mostly he talked about British science fiction, though I was a little bit interactive in that one because I've actually read some of the stuff he talked about, about half. Um, this week we are talking about H.P. H.P. Lovecraft, and I have a fascination with Lovecraft, although I've only read one book, and then I've listened to it on Audible uh, a couple times, uh, and, you know, obviously it's Cthulhu, uh, maybe not so obviously, but I don't think I've read anything else. Um, uh, I watched Lovecraft Country on HBO, and there's parts of it I like, there's parts of it not so much. Um, the parts that were about a commentary on, on social societies and social issues. I thought that the show on HBO a year earlier, Watchmen, did better. Um, but it was okay. But obviously, the literature is a whole different thing. It was the inspiration for the for the book. I, I mean, for the series, I suppose. Uh, but we, before we say hello to Emery, I have to extend a couple of thanks. One is to music and wrestling entrance theme composer John Kiernan, extraordinaire. Love his stuff. Check him out. John Kiernan. K-I-E-R-N-A-N. And much thanks to Amber Rodriguez, who is a professional wrestler. John wrote a theme for Amber Rodriguez a few months ago, and he always shares the music with me and, and you know, all of the people in Six Degrees. 
And there were parts of it I thought lent itself to the show. I, I don't really exactly recall why I thought felt that way, uh, but hopefully we'll catch the vibe at the end of the show. I thank them. They both gave permission to use it. No copyright issues here whatsoever. So thank you to John Kiernan. Thank you to Amber Rodriguez. Check out her stuff. Uh, check out her work. And hopefully they get a little synergy out of this too. But without further ado, I want to welcome in my old friend, one of the smartest people I know, and one of the most well-read people I know, and that is Emery Potter. Hello, Emery. Hey, how are you? I'm good. You sound very excited. No, actually, I am. I kind of would like to comment. Is it, am I echoing? Is it good? No, you're good. You're, your mic is terrific. This is much better than last time. Okay, so, you know, when you talk about the Lovecraft Country and the Watchmen part, what I would want to point to is that the book that Lovecraft Country is based on predates Watchmen. So Watchmen sort of already had that concept of the source material before. And I'm going to talk about Lovecraft Country a little in this because the social commentary and its existence, I think is partially because the guy who wrote it loved Lovecraft but had trouble dealing with the fact that the man was a racist. And um, pretty horribly so. His dog was named the Edward. I mean, Ooh. <laughs> okay? Um, so that's, you know, one of the things you have to deal with them from the very beginning, but we're also talking about people in New England in the 1920s, and they were pretty damn racist. Yeah, this, this is this is sort of, a, a, I think, a struggle we've, as a society, has had for a while, but especially since the explosion of social media, that we have a lot of trouble separating the art from the artist. And I really don't pay attention to celebrity culture specifically for that, like, I don't like people like people say, what do you think of Pete Davidson? Who's Pete Davidson? Then they tell me Pete Davidson. OK, I know who Pete Davidson is. Then they tell me all the shit that's going on, with Pete Davidson. And now it's like, well, I don't know. Am I, uh, can I still say that I thought the Queen, the King of Staten Island was one of the best movies I saw during the COVID era? I mean, I still allowed to think that, you know, he was funny on Saturday Night Live. So, I, you know, I, I would just rather not know all this stuff or, you know, but uh, absent not knowing it, I do do the best I can to separate the art from the artist. Uh, Wagner's a pretty good example too, but we stray. No one's interested in what I have to say, or if they are, they're, they're, they know they only get little snippets each show. And after about 9,000 shows, maybe they'll get a picture of who I am. Um, so yeah, do on, tell. On that one, my, I've always used this. I might not agree with what Ben and Jerry uh, put their money into, but Chunky Monkey tastes good. Yeah, I... Yeah, that, 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 that's a good one. And Wavy Gravy was the greatest ice cream ever made. And why it's discontinued? Everything I love gets discontinued. There was Graham Webb Brick style medium whole gel discontinued. The Cinnamon Oblivion of, of, of Outback, the greatest dessert ever, discontinued. Wavy Gravy discontinued. I could go on and on with my list of petty grievances of commercial limes that have been discontinued that I loved and probably because only because I love them. But that that's really not what the show is about, though. I mean, Aren't, isn't all the literature about some sort of lost love? Well, no, actually, we just are all plotting against you. So I know. So I know. To deal with that. I've known that, that. That's why I've launched the Darker Order of Tartarus to to counter to counterplot. So um, I'm taking some of the stuff that I'm talking about at the very beginning from a guy by the name of St. Josh. He is a Lovecraft historian, and just to give sort of a background on on H.P. Lovecraft, you know, he was born in 1890. That's how far apart we are from this person. You know, I'm pretty old. I was born in 1965. Um, 
Jesus Christ, old man. I'm a young 1968er. But his uh, father was paralyzed uh, when he was like four or five years old and died when he was eight. His father was put into a hospital during that time. Later, his grandfather assumed the role of the father in his life. He was a bit of an industrialist. They were a semi-Christocratic family for Providence, Rhode Island. Definitely not top of the heap, but far enough from the bottom of the barrel to think a lot of themselves. <laughs> um, his mother uh, is described as having been the uh, combination of overprotective and emotionally distant. That is, I think, a wonderful explanation of some of the people I've run into in my lifetime. And um, as a kid, he was um, uh, a bit of a science nerd, was really into chemistry and astronomy. I think both of those ended up playing a big role in the later uh, work that he did. Um, he ended up withdrawing from high school. He was having problems, as mm -hmm. they used to put it back then. Um, he essentially became a hermit for about five years after that and uh, was not interacting with people on a personal level. So he was doing a lot more of what was called amateur uh, journalism, something that existed in the culture where you didn't want to be a journalist. You didn't want to work for a newspaper. You were too high in society for that. And so they had these clubs they would form. And he belonged to two different clubs and wrote a bunch of essays that they would publish in their club magazine. So he was, he was a podcaster. Yeah, yeah, he really was. That's a, that's an excellent metaphor for that. That's that's an analogy. Yeah, although well, he didn't use ads. Um, <laughs> and um, his first writings went into when a friend of his, who I didn't write his name down, started the magazine Weird Tales. And um, he started publishing in these brand new pulp magazines. And I, I don't know where I am with your audience. I'm going to assume they know what a pulp magazine means. Um, well, just to make sure, folks, a magazine, it's like a website or something no, you would see on your phone. I mean, a pulp magazine. Except, except it's on paper. And it was printed on cheap pulp paper, some of the right. cheapest you could buy. Right. And that, you know, it was generally where the modern detective stories and modern romance and other stuff of that time came out. The stuff that you threw away when you were done with it. Yes, but they and have I, to understand that they got information from paper. <laughs> they looked at paper with words and pictures on it. And he would not be known to us today because he made I was going to go through, he got married, he moved to New York for a while, did not like it there, ended up getting divorced and moved back to Providence, Rhode Island, where he spent the rest of his life, where he died in poverty. Aww. And, um, you know, he did his best writing right after he got divorced and removed, moved back to Providence, Rhode Island. That's when the whole Tulu, the uh, color out of space, and some of the other stuff he did. Now, he would not be known to us today uh, in any real way if it weren't for this guy named August Derleth, D-E-R-L-E-T-H, who um, just became obsessed with Lovecraft and kept copies of whatever he could and published Lovecraft's work posthumously and is pretty much the person who's responsible for Lovecraft becoming, you know, the famous person he is today when no one knew who the heck he was. In fact, my mother's turning 95 today. She was born in 1927. Happy birthday. And, yeah. And uh, I asked her about, told her I was doing a podcast on Lovecraft today. And she's like, who's he? Right. 
Uh, exactly. You know, uh, people from that generation didn't know who they were. I mean, she doesn't read this kind of stuff. Right. Kind of creepy if your mom does, but then some people's mothers do. Um, so, and that takes us to out to just sort of love crap. I, I don't know where you want me to go with this. I've outlined a bunch of stuff because I love him. I enjoy him so very much. I have found three main things, themes of his that I think are the ones that attracted me the most to. Well, I think that that's probably a good place to start is sort of like the overarching themes uh, of his work. And then maybe we can get into some of the more famous ones and, and what they were about. And then maybe some of your, you know, your hidden gems, some of your your favorites that maybe, if there are, that don't that aren't sort of uh, mainstream hits, so to speak. Well, uh, you know, I'm going to start talking about the thematic elements of his work in a minute. But the things that turned me on to him at the very beginning were the, the words he used. Um, he creates a very gothic atmosphere. He has one word he loves to use called cyclopay, which means really, really old and big and bulky. <laughs> um, but the way he, the words that he used were often ones that I'm not reading on a regular basis. And so it was nice. It was a change of pace, the way he put stuff together um, in his writing style. A lot of his stuff is written by a person who's explaining to another person what the hell happened to him. And so it paces itself. Um, the second thing was the pacing of the stories. He definitely is very good at the slow buildup of the story over time to where you're reading the um, rather almost banal uh, information sometimes given at the beginning um, until you get to this just slowly worked up phase to where you're going, oh my God, this is just freaky. Or, you know, I, I can't believe he's taken me to this place. And the, this place part is what leads me to my third thing that really turned me on to Lovecraft, and that was his world building. Um, we live in an age now, to me, where people take way too much time for world building in the TV shows and things we watch. There's one, I read some of the Wheel of Time books, and I'm not here to crap on anybody's show. But, you know, when people told me I didn't like the first episode, they said, well, four or five episodes in, you'll start to like it. I'm like, that's too much world building. Yeah. If, you, if I have to watch four or five episodes of something to like it, forget it. I'm yeah. done. Uh, you, you, you know, I'm not saying you have to grab me with that hook that the American movie needs at the very beginning. You know, all, all again, we've gotten to where all novels start off with that first chapter where something really freaky happens. Um, I can take the slope. I, I like the, the world building he does. Um, and that world building, and we're going to talk about these go through, uh, it incorporates something that rather Stephen Kingish, as you know, King. For the majority of his career, everything happened in Maine. And Maine is a dark, freaky, tree-filled place. Yeah. It's a great place to be scary, you mm -hmm. know? Uh, Kennebunkport's beautiful and all, but go inland and it's a little, it's a little odd. I, I spent six summers in Maine, and, and uh, Stephen King lived not far from where I was. We were in uh, Bangor. I think he was in Winthrop. So, yeah, I, I like people from Maine because they talk slow like we do. But uh, they, they sound different when they do. Yes. Um, 
So, but he, he created, though, he was from Rhode Island, he created um, a city in Massachusetts called Arkham, uh, which you may have heard of Arkham at some point in your life, if you ever heard of this odd sort of uh, Batman kind of comic right. book where that's where the insane asylum is. Right. And that's what it was named after. Exactly. And in Arkham is Miskatonic University. And Miskatonic University is the fictional place um, where the professors and his tales all seem to work, where the books such as the Necronomicon are located, and it sort of acts as a central launching point to a lot of his tales, or a place for people to go to in his tales when they need references to deal with whatever crazy-ass crap they're dealing with, because they're an H.P. Lovecraft story. Sort of like a Hogwarts without the fun. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh-huh. That, that'd be a good way they put it. I like that. So, um, I got my notes out of order here, didn't I? Yes, I did. All right, so, um, I'm going to go to the race issue just to get it out of the way to a certain extent. Why? Some of the stories that are his, that you read, um, if a character is black, they're frightening. Um, in one of his best central stories, The Call of Cthulhu, however the hell you're supposed to pronounce it, Cthulhu, I've been told, um, it, it, it projects the, the people that are African-American, well, they're not even American, the black people there is very primitive and engaging in very primitive superstitions. Um, it's just, it's who he is, and you weren't looked down at it all the time because it was just rampant. So I moved past that. Um, it's not like his tales are full of it. It's not like I'm reading something by some grand imperial wizard of the Ku Klux Klan. It's just every once in a while you come across and you get that little cringe. Yeah. Um, but otherwise, his works stand very well on their own. And where I guess I'd like to start... Um, is the very first, well, first off, I'm curious, you said you'd read one book, I'd listened to, what book is that? Well, it starts with, In His House at Riley, Dead Cthulhu, Weight Streaming. Yeah, okay. That is Cthulhu. Cthulhu. Yeah, the Call of the of Cthulhu. That, that's the okay. only that's the only one I've ever read. Uh, I, I don't even remember where I first heard that phrase but as soon as i heard it i'm like what the hell is this i need to know more about it and then like i, I don't know I, I it must have been in a song or something or whatever and then i i found it on um audible and then i think like uh the guy who does myths and legends has a song called Fic uh, i mean a podcast called fictional and he did and then all of a sudden i'm seeing cthulhu everywhere so you know I, I decided i had to read it um and then just in case i thought i uh and I'm sorry, I said Audible earlier, I meant fictional. Um, but I did later get it on Audible and listen to it after I read it because I'm not that good at reading anymore, or at least I'm not sure I am. So, yeah, so that, that was the one. And I don't know. I, I don't know if it's the first book that, that uh, I remember that, that had sort of like these sort of parallel dueling stories going on. Uh, probably not. Um I think I think War and Peace uh, did as well, but uh, um, I don't know. It was just for whatever reason the whole thing sort of sang to me, and I don't mean like you know like Celine Dion. It's just 
I felt like it had a rhythm to it, but a creepy rhythm. And I like that creepy rhythm. Like, like, like the way a good psychological thriller slash horror movie gets you. Like the way the, the omen or hereditary sort of gets you. That like you feel the rhythm, like you feel it sort of in your soul, that your your hair, your the hackles on your neck go up. You get goosebumps over little things. Like the one thing about Stephen King is that whenever something gets scary to me, it ends. It just ends. Then I'm not scared anymore. Certain the, the books I like are the ones that carry it forward. They don't just, you know, like I, that creepy feeling stays with me and beyond when I put the book down. All right. Well, that's a good lead in to my first H.P. Lovecraft story I read. Cool. It's called The Rats and the Walls. And um, we're going to talk about the themes uh, as to his uh, protagonists in a minute. But the protagonist in this story is the last member of a uh, line um, a family out of uh, the UK and he is in America and he doesn't know any of his ancestors or anything and he has inherited this estate and he goes to the estate and he keeps hearing all this screeching and chittering in the walls and he can't figure out what it is and it's this beautiful estate on a hill. And I'm not going to tell everything about them because I want people to be able to read the stories. I mean, if you come here and I tell you how they all end, but I'm going to tell you how this one ends um, because it doesn't ruin the story at all. Uh, he brings along the friend, which is a common element in uh, Lovecraft stories, and they explore the house after you know you meet the people in the village, and it slowly builds. And they find a door. And they go through the door, which takes them down some stairs to this really strange place. And they can hear the rats in the walls. And then they keep go finding new doors and going down deeper stairs and finding older and older places. And our protagonist keeps getting a little more weirded out and a little stranger the lower they go down. Mm -hmm. Until we get down past the Romans past uh, Stonehenge and there is this altar and this room and your protagonist leaves for a while with another guy and they're looking for him and sure enough our protagonist who has gone back to his family way and is eating the other dude. He's killed him and he's eating him. <laughs> and you're just sort of left there with this, you know, you've gone through the whole, he's done all this genealogy to figure out his family and etc. And there he is. You, you never think of him as a bad guy. And that's something I want to talk about in a minute. Um, and it, but at the end of everything, suddenly it's inside of him. The evil that he's feeling, the problems he's having, the sounds of the rats and the walls are coming from inside his heredity, his history. The phone call, okay. it's coming from inside the house. Yes. Uh huh. Okay. So that one. <laughs> okay, thought that was okay. Was uh sure. No, that was no, that was good. That was good. That, that was um that one is one once again where our protagonist is we're, we're for them all the way through until at the very end when they start to completely lose it and we realize we're rooting for the wrong guy. Right. And then the next one I read, um, I know of no adaptations of the rats in the walls. I had, well, Chapel Wait, uh, which uh, it was based on a Stephen King tale as a precursor to Salem's Lot. 
doesn't exactly use rats in the wall, but it's not too far-fetched. But, uh, it, I mean, what you were describing, it sounds a little bit like Dante. Yeah. Well, I mean, you are going into each time a little deeper circle of hell. Yes, mm. yes, not at all. It's just his own personal hell as opposed to a hell writ large. So, moving on from that one, the second book I read was called The Shadow Over His Mouth. And the reason why I read it second was I read the first one and went, wow. Right. Which one should I read next? Because I had a big book full. And I have a tendency sometimes to start with the shortest and work my way to the longest. Because I figure if I like the short stuff, the long stuff, I'll enjoy. Sure. But I didn't take that approach this time and found out at that point that there were games of The Shadow Over Insmile. There were video um, uh, animated versions of it that there have been plans to make movies out of it. And by the way, there was a movie made out of it. And we'll discuss that in just a second, though it's not the same thing at all, which is what happens in Lovecraft almost every time they make a movie out of it. So, it goes so, to a lot of great books. I mean, you know about me and the, the Descent. I feel about The Descent the way you feel about Lovecraft. Yeah. So, um, The Shadow Over Innsmouth is one where, once again, I love the words you use, I love the word building, world building, and the pacing. And we have this fellow who goes back to New England and knows he has family ties there that are very attenuated and wants to go to this town called Innsmouth. Well, there's only one bus that goes there. It only goes once a day and he comes back. And everyone tells him he really could skip it. It's not a place he wants to go. And he gets there and builds this world of this decaying and decrepit um, coastal town in New England. And when he gets there, it's all deserted and strange. And the, it all builds slowly. He keeps meeting the people and they look odd to him. And he gets a room for the night. And eventually, it becomes one of those things where he's being chased through the city by this horde. And he doesn't know what. And we essentially learn that there are these um, mutant creatures in the ocean that have mated with the people in the town and they have created this whole new race and they want to stop him from being able to reveal it to the rest of the world and we have a wonderful chase through this old decrepit town him escaping you're all excited and we get to the end that is an amazingly different end of end but a typical end of now and he starts looking at himself in the mirror and as he ages, his features become more and more like the mutant people that chased him off, and he's one of them. Oh, man. And he goes back. Sure. Okay? And that's one of the things where I want to talk about. This is one of the two, to me, major breaks in Lovecraft's approach toward the horror story, because he also writes science fiction. I mean, to me... Hulu's story is science fiction. It's not really hard to me, but I'll discuss why that is. Okay. Okay, but in Lovecraft's stories, we have narrators who, as far as we are concerned, are just innocent as can be from the beginning. Don't really commit any bad acts. Rats the wall that eats people. Um, but end up at the end doomed or evil. And that, to me, 
goes away from what the theme was in most horror stories. In Poe, let's talk about Poe for a second. Hit the Benjamin. Dude escapes at the end. Purloined letter. Good guy gets away, police don't find the letter. Uh, he has a story with fingerprinting. I can't remember the name of it. Bad guy spends the whole night trying to wipe all the fingerprints where he's killed someone, and then the police arrive. Bad guy gets caught. Telltale heart. Bad guy goes nuts. Bad guy gets caught. Here's the heart under the floor. Uh, murders in a room more. The, um, they're having a huge costume party while the plague is rearing outside in this bizarre, no, that's not Murders in a room more. That's um, the fault. That's the Red Death. Yeah. Um, the Mask of the Red Death. Um, you know, everyone's dying outside. The rich people are inside having their own party, and this one person manages to sneak out and give them all the plague. Bad guys get it in the end. That was Vincent Price. Yeah. Uh, Murders of the Rue Morgue, that's the uh, the gorilla thing. I'm going to try to do that. That doesn't fit in mind. Fall of the House of Usher. The last member of the House of Usher, this decrepit, horrible house, dies and falls in around him. Narrator, who hasn't done anything wrong, escapes. Uh, Casca Montillado does not fit in this mode. This, uh, because our hero is the bad guy who kills the other guy and brings him up in the wall. One of the best stories ever written. So, let's look at the other things that were out there, though. But oh, and the doctor, uh, and one of my favorite stories of um, Edgar Allan Poe, this tale of Doctor Tar and Professor Feather, the people who go to the asylum where the lunatics have escaped and Tar and Feathered all the doctors, pretend like they're running it. Our people still get away. The good guys get away. Frankenstein, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. By the time we get to the end of that book. Dr. Frankenstein deserves it when the monster comes after him. Oh, if you've sure. actually read the book, I mean, it has nothing to do with most of the adaptations you've ever seen. Yeah. But once again, bad guy. Um, Dracula, we have our temper, typical vampire tale. Bad guy gets to the end. Good guys try to win. H.G. Wells, human center. Vern, human center. You know, War of the Worlds. Now I'm trying to move into my next point. Okay. I'm not going to write quite yet. Um, so, the one, one of the first areas of Lovecraft's work that I like to talk about or think about was what I've done is the narrator has the experience, comes back, tells you about it. Um, and they kind of have to beat it out of the purse. There's one called Pickering's Model, which we're going to talk about in the Cthulhu mythos, where we have a guy who's explaining what happened and why this famous painter has been killed. I'll go into that in a minute. So, horror. What type of more generalized horror did we see from Lovecraft? Uh, of the adaptations I've seen of Lovecraft, the closest it comes is a story called Herbert West, Reanimator. It's the movie Reanimator. Right. And um, it's, he's, bringing these creatures back to life. He has them in these pits underneath the ground. He's got his whole laboratory. We have our narrator comes in, our narrator experiences what's going on. It's in the traditional tale, our narrator barely escapes the wrath of the dead people that he's reanimated. Um, another uh, type of sort of sci-fi horror that I really like, this is an off the trails or whatever stories called the cool air and air conditioning was pretty damn new in the 1920s mm. um, I mean you know essentially that's when air conditioning came from the idea of a swamp cooler 
or you got a fan and you blew it across some falling water and it cooled down the room. Um, and this story involves a man who puts air conditioning in his room and keeps bringing in all this ice. And the landlord is just wondering what the hell's going on. And this guy's dead. But he's found a way to refrigerate himself and keep himself alive. <laughs> and, you know, it completely fails today because, you know, we all are used to air conditioning and understand how it works. And it's nothing new to us in a concept, old concept back then about somebody taking, you know, an air conditioner and using it to make, you know, a corpse able to work is pretty wild. Sure. Just like electricity can put together a bunch of uh, mismatched parts and uh, create life. Exactly. Yeah. Frankenstein is right at the same level. And um, another one is uh, the Pittman's model I talked about. We'll come back because there are references to a thing called a Yolk Shogoth in there, which is in the Call of Cthulhu. Um, Pittman's model, yeah, Pittman's model is a story. Um, it has the narrator is someone who went and met with this famous painter named Pittman. And he's looking at Pittman's work, and Pittman says, well, I have this new work I'm doing. I'm going on a completely different direction. And he explains how he takes pictures of backgrounds so he can draw them meticulously with a camera and then paints on them. And then there are these just horrific paintings of these awful creatures burrowing through the ground of the city. And then there's this one painting which shows the thing that we later learn is a Yolk Shogoth um, that's got these horribly beady eyes and claws and is covered in blood and is eating what's left of a human and can't be described because it can't be described as sort of a Lovecraftian thing you deal with. And the guys just can't believe this painter's gone so insane that he can make these things up from his mind. And the pivotal moment of the story is when he looks at this piece of paper and realizes that the photograph is not just in the background. The photograph is of that creature in the background. And the Pickering has stood there and taken pictures of this creature while it's, you know, feasting on human flesh. Right. So, you know, that, that one's, it's one that's not spoken of. It's not a big popular one, but it also has the, uh, the Cthulhu, Cthulhu, um, mythos in it because you have this one creature that is central to the entire is, story. Is that creature the same that they tried to depict in Lovecraft Country that was sort of like the giant bulbous head, like almost like vampire wolf things? Or actually remember the thing that had the eyeballs all over it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean it's it's described differently and different, but it's just this usually this amorphous, horrible uh, a loathsome creature that you can't even describe. I mean, it, uh, when Lovecraft uses the word, giving us the name Thulu, he says we can't say the name. He actually describes it in something that we're incapable of saying the name uh, because we can't pronounce it as humans. But that's the closest as we can come. Oh, well, you know, we did the same thing with Yahweh, right? I mean, yeah. uh, Jehovah. Yeah. <laughs> you know. There are no little marks above and beyond the pages uh, in Lovecraft's book where he left his words up. That we, that we can see. Um, but yeah, but those were, uh, you know, at the, first, at the end of the first episode of uh, Lovecraft Country, those things were very 
prominence. And then I think there was another episode, uh, I think when the uh, African-American family uh, were, were all, you know, they were in the white suburban neighborhood where everybody was shooting at them, including the cops, and they were making like their stand. Then like one or more of those creatures came up to sort of save the day. I, I think that's the, is that the same creature we're talking about? Okay, so that's the same creature we're talking about. So the, the, the creators that tried to, you know, describe it uh, or, or use their whatever vision they were, but that that's basically what it was, sort of like a giant bulbous wolf, uh, Tasmanian devil, kind of all-eating machine, uh, Caliban kind of thing. Argos, rather. Ar- Argos, not Caliban. So, very much so. Very much so. So, um, this now takes me into the um, next theme of Lovecraft that I think is how he really changed the concept of okay where he really changed the concept of the focus of a supernatural or weird tale and uh, he argued when he wrote at the mountains of madness which we'll talk about um, this is a quote from Lovecraft The time has come when the normal revolt against time, space, and matter must assume a form not overly incompatible with what is known of reality, when it must be gratified by images forming supplements rather than contradictions of the visible and measurable universe. And what, if not, a form of non-supernatural cosmic art is to pacify the sense of revolt as well as gratify it the cognate sense of curiosity. What the hell is he saying there? Well, what he's saying is that he removes the mankind or humanity, uh, we live in this new world, uh, centered focus of most novels and other um, horror of the time and makes mankind very secondary, very unimportant, very, we just happen to be here for a short period of time. There are these. Um, okay, returning from edit. Okay. <laughs> I don't know where the heck I was, but um, I'm talking about the aesthetic of the human, human-centered versus humanity having very little importance because Gulu sleeps and really, yeah, dead and really, yeah, you know, waiting to be awakened. Um, we just don't matter. We're just sort of here. Um, the, what he's talking about is that there are these creatures that are so far beyond our understanding that we see them as gods. Kind of like the Arthur C. Clarke statement, you know, any sufficiently advanced form of uh, technology uh, will be seen as magic by a less technological race. These gods are so more powerful and long-lived than we are, that we have no real meaning. Sort of like the uh, Celestials in Eternals, except unlike Eternals, they, they create this sort of uh, bridge group, the Eternals, uh, to to act as sort of a... Well, they weren't supposed to be a bridge between humanity and Celestials, but they ended up that way, uh, at least in the one movie. But, uh, yeah, sort of like... The, I mean, I think the Celestials are, are a direct take on... The Titans uh, and uh, 
And, and you know, and I think the Lovecraft probably borrowed from a lot of mythologies as as well. Uh, you know, Typhon, the, the serpent of Midgard, uh, you know, a lot of these things, you know, I, you know, and, and obviously to me, I mean, the, the, especially the new embrace of Godzilla movies, they've embraced the Titans fully. I mean, you know, I think right down to 12, which is, you know, of course, the holy number, you know, of, of the divine number of all the, you know, big pantheons, the Sumerians, the, the uh, uh, Canaanites, the Egyptians, the, the Greeks, uh, you know, all had 12, which is, you know, why our clocks are 1 through 12 and 1 through 12 as opposed to 1 through 24. If you ever get my son who would have a BS in math to explain to you why base 10 is so stupid compared to base 12 and why we should be at base 12, it even takes a little further on that one. I'd be happy to talk to your son about it. That sounds like more of a Garden Views show, but it's all in the same feed. It doesn't matter. So, uh, so this changes the aspect, and I'm going to go back to what I was, where I was with. Uh, I'm going to go with, you know, in H.G. Wells, whose works were written prior to those of Lovecraft. So there's something he, I'm sure he looked at based on it. Um, you know, we have War of the Worlds, but it's very human-centered. I mean, you know, our our diseases kill the aliens and that, the Martians. Mm -hmm. um, we have the island of Dr. Moreau, where the, uh, not the protagonist, but Dr. Moreau is perverting the human form by melding it with other creatures. Now, granted, I love the story. I think it's really interesting. I don't think it's perverting, but that's kind of the idea there. Food of the gods. We have this ability to make everything huge by feeding them something, but it still comes out of it's wrong in our context. The invisible man is still, you know, in our context. And so what I find that uh, Lovecraft did here was he took that step beyond and, and just took the humans out of the equation. We just are observers well, in a lot of these tales. That's the, I'm not sure. I mean, listen, you're the expert on this, and I only read the, all of the one book. But, but in the Call of Cthulhu, there definitely were human actors, almost like the familiars of vampires, that that were sort of making sure the story didn't get out. So that he did have human agents, which you know was sort of copied in the, in the descent a little bit uh, as well. Um, which reminded me very much of a, of a vampire tale, which, you know, I'm a sucker for a good vampire tale. Unfortunately, there's so few of them, but the, the one, the good ones are, are making worth the way. Um, so, you know, it's, there it was sort of there that there was this cult that, you know, secret society call, whatever you will, that obviously existed for as many ages as, as these Titans existed, which is, you know, pre, you know, written history. And then, you know, and then probably, you know, <laughs> you know, beyond any Egyptian and, and Sumerian dynastic uh, lists of, of kings, whether you believe that to be fact or fiction. Oh, without a doubt. And, uh, it, it, yeah, I mean, but I, I find that, to me, this is at least one of the earliest of this theme. And it's interesting that he was, he encouraged people to use the mythos he was creating and work with other people on it. And actually, uh, I'm going to talk about one thing here real quick, and that is the Necronomicon. Now, the Necronomicon is, oh, do I still have that mark? The Book of the Dead. The Book of the Dead, but it's actually 
the written by oh I moved my footnote. Okay. So the Necronomicon was written by the mad Arab Al Azid and and purportedly was bound in human flesh. And it takes you through a discussion of that the Necronomicon has been translated into Greek and they were burned and talks about the popes who, you know, who had the book uh, ordered destroyed. And essentially when we get to our present day, there are five copies, one in London at a university, one in the National Library of Paris, one in Cambridge, Massachusetts, one in the University of Buenos Aires, and one at Miskatonic University. Yeah, of course. In Arkham, Massachusetts. And uh, the Necronomicon appears in numerous of his books and has actually become a bit of a cultural phenomenon for anyone who thinks that the Evil Dead movies are good, which I am one of them. I love Evil Dead and Army of Darkness. Uh, Evil Dead 2 is kind of for me. But the Army of Darkness is, to me, one of the best. It, it, it is to horror what heavy metal and the fifth element were to science fiction. It's just a fun, fun ride. Yeah, no, I thought those were good movies. I forget the guy's name, but he, he played Briscoe County Jr. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Um, and so that's the book that's in it, and that's heavily relies on the concept of the Necronomicon. And throughout the... Uh, tales when we get into this mythos, we find people breaking into Masonic, Miskatonic University to get a hold of a copy. And then one person in a story, uh, I think it's the Dunwich Horror, where there is another copy that no one knows about. Wait, does, does Miskatonic mean anything in any language? Like, is there is there a deeper, did you just make the word up, or is it the name of, uh, you know, local, I don't know, the Pequot tribe, or, you know, whatever? No idea. No idea. I haven't even looked that up. I didn't even think about it. Um, did almost buy this Catonic University t-shirt so I could recognize my fellow geeks as I walked around. <laughs> uh, I have a couple of t-shirts that are tests like that. Um, we all so, do, Emery. We all do. <laughs> we um, So let's go straight to Call of Duty. Um it is the central tale of Thulu Mythos, and it takes place, you know, like you said, it's episodic for as short a story as it is. Right. And we have the different, you know, we have him spot, they've seen Cthulhu on the ocean, and we have all the different parts of that story. And um, it builds a mythos beyond there being these supernatural godlike beings that exist outside of our time. Um, if you really like the story, someone made a movie of the Call of Thulu, and if you really like the story, you'll like the movie, but essentially it's done filmed as if it were filmed at the time the events happened. Okay. So we've got a silent movie, and then we flash back to an old, old style movie for one part of the story. Um, where it's, you know, the film is round and it's all sepia and it's, it's really, if you really like the story, it's a really cool movie. It's only like, it's less than 90 minutes. It's kind of fun. What's it called? Call, the of, Call the... of Thulu. I'll, I'll, I'll search it later on. So it's, it's sort of like 
Nosferatu, but then you even see things that are older looking than Nosferatu. That's a perfect reference. That's a perfect reference. Yeah, it's, it's got a Nosferatu feel for part of it, without a doubt. Gotcha. That's a creepy movie. Oh, wonderfully creepy. The uh, You know that dude, like, never broke character. I, I, I didn't know that but yeah, that's a, <laughs> I read about the movie and he freaked the people out on the set because he wouldn't break character hey, <laughs> so, it looks like it, you know from the looks of him I'm not sure how much he could have really <laughs> so we got the Necronomicon we got the Gods Beyond Time um, the next one I would move to on that one uh, first of all you know, with part of the gods beyond time are their servants, which include the Yagshaga and the, I forget the other one's name right now, I didn't write it down for me. And uh, they appear throughout a lot of the different books. In terms of the normalcy of a book and starting, whew, that's kind of tough. I told you about Pigman's model. Just, um, I, I'm going to go to Whisper in the Darkness. This is a science fiction story. Um, it's a novella. It's long enough to count. And essentially, there are a lot of strange things floating up in the rivers in Massachusetts. A lot of weird stuff is going on. And people are saying that this is some kind of crazy witchcraft stuff. And this guy at the university says, nah, this is just old wives' tales, etc." And he ends up in a correspondence with this guy. He says, no, it's all true. Mm -hmm. And they go back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And the guy invites him to bring all of his letters and all the papers belonging to this and meet him at his house. And he arrives at the house and things start to get really weird. And he is talking to the guy who's in this robe. It seems kind of odd and a little dark. And it's not quite right. And there's this canister with the guy's name on it next to it, and the guy's explaining to him that these creatures um, are going to take him to Yogolf, and they're going to remove his brain, and it's going to work perfectly, and they're going to put it in this canister. Abby and normal. How, and how they're able to travel through space and time in this manner, and he'll get a new body when he arrives. And that he's going to do this procedure, and he really recommends that the other guy do it, too. Uh, mostly, I think, to get rid of the evidence. Sure. And um, this guy flees, comes back the next day, and everything's gone except the robe uh, that the guy was wearing. And he opens it and finds something in it, and it's a fake face and fake hands. And it turns out the guy's brain was already in the canister, and this was some creature trying to convince him to get off the spaceship, like an agent in the Call of Thulu, to make sure there's no trail, no trace of what's going on. You know, the one, I mean, I think that maybe fan fiction has already done this, but, you know, from Dracula and all these books and, and sort of, you know, all these books from this era, the one the one people who never seem to be affected by anything supernatural, the monster, eh, or anything scary that goes back, bump in the dark, are the postmen. The letters always get there. Back and forth, <laughs> the letters always get there. <laughs> They must have been like Templars. <laughs> oh, and so these uh, continue. There's uh, the Dunwich Horror, which you can watch the movie made in the 60s, which is a vampire story. It has nothing to do with the Dunwich Horror, uh, except there are a few similarities. 
but then that one, uh, Yog Shoggoth has mated with this deformed albino sister of one of the characters. And they have this child, which grows amazingly fast and becomes incredibly intelligent. And um, there's my, um, you know, people are wondering what's going on because the father keeps buying cattle, but the herd never gets any larger. And uh, this little kid, I mean, the thing's like two years old, and it's devouring cattle. Sure, of course. Um, and but you don't know that, of course, till the end of the story. Oh, I'm hip. I picked up on it right away. <laughs> and we have reference to Lulu in there, and the Yokshaga, etc. So this is very um, Anunnaki like, you know, sort of uh, the the gods, you know, messing with whoever they like to create, you know, man. But you know, before they make man, or maybe contemporaries. They make all sort of uh, matter manners of monsters and monstrosities and grotesques, uh, and you know some they keep and some they don't. And um, this kind of takes me through to the, the whole science fiction idea. But there's another one called the uh, the color out of space, and that is a story which takes place, of course, in the Appalachian Mountains of New England, and um, something has landed out of space and starts changing all the foliage. Now, by the time they call them the app, by the time you get to New England, they, they, they've given them more pleasant names. They call them the Catskills, the Berkshires, the White Mountains, right? I mean, they, they, you know, the, nobody calls it the Appalachians. Yeah, well, we call them the Smoky Mountains down here, but they're all the Appalachians. Right. Yeah, I mean, right, they, they, you know, it's not that big a continent. We, 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 just, we just like to have different names for whatever reason, but yeah. So uh, that one is very interesting because it's definitely a science fiction story. This is clearly an alien force that's done this. And our protagonist watches his whole family just sort of change and everything. It's a great story. I'm not going to talk too much about that one because if somebody's going to listen to all of this, read The Color Out of Space. You're going to love it. I, I promise you that, that most, that, that, that very few of my listeners are going to read seven or eight books basically they might pick one or two uh, you know well, the beauty of lovecraft is is you can go into barnes and noble and purchase the entire fiction of hp lovecraft in one um volume i actually donated my books when my son went to the school that started and they had no library and i said i'm gonna put some real books in these damn libraries i'm sure somebody looked at lovecraft and threw it away immediately right yeah i'm sure they've been subject to banning and you've caused the entire you know controversy giving a lot of uh, sleepless nights to, to nights to school board members but yeah that's uh, that, that's well um you know what you earlier on you said that you thought Cthulhu was a science fiction tale, not a horror tale. But I, either I missed it or, or, or you forgot to point out exactly why you feel that way. Well, I feel that way because partially of the story, The Shadow Out of Time, which maybe, I don't know if it's my favorite H.P. Lovecraft story, but I think it may be the best. H.P. Lovecraft story. And this is a, uh, a, a body exchange story, uh, kind of like all the ones they made in the late 80s, Freaky Friday, that kind of stuff. Big, 
accepted. Except that this time, the body exchange is not between two humans in the same time, in the same place, but between some monstrous creature that's from a different time and is actually, we learn later through the thing, on the earth in a place we haven't found yet. It's so closer to fallen. We will get to the finding of that place a little later. And so the story is in two parts. The And it goes back and forth, and part of it is that all of a sudden this woman's husband changes. And he starts talking weird. Starts going to libraries, reading every book in the library in no time. Going everywhere, traveling, doing all this sort of stuff he would have done before. She can't figure out what's going on, and he's having all these sort of problems dealing with other people because he doesn't understand human interaction all of a sudden. And then we meet our protagonist, who's now in another body that's huge, mm-hmm. in another place, and he's realizing that he's in this other body. And when he first realizes it, I mean, uh, he's having falls down, he's having all sorts of problems because he doesn't know how to move the body or how to make it work. And when he realizes he has tentacles at one point, it's pretty darn awesome. (laughs) And what it does is it takes into account that there are these celestial beings that are traveling throughout space and time and gathering all the information from space and time and sort of creating this library, you know, that makes the, uh, the, oh, come on, this, this hurts me, the Encyclopedia Galactica, or the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, way, 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 way too small. Gotcha. Um, it just covers all space, all time, all creatures, etc. And the thing is written so well that when you are dealing with this dude inside this other body, it, it's just, it, really took me away. It was, it was good stuff. Um, and it's very science fiction oriented to me as it deals with space travel, travel through time, etc. I did like the color out of space is something from outer space coming here, some outer thing, not some horror from inside us, not some vampire, not some werewolf we turn into, not some sort of ghost we turn into after we die, not some sort of thing that's sewn together out of our bodies to make something different. It's something completely different that travels here through space. Which takes us to what's probably my favorite H.P. Lovecraft story at the Mountains of Madness. I like the name. And at the Mountains of Madness is takes place in the nineteen late nineteen twenties, early thirties, somewhere around there, and it involves exploration of Antarctica. And we're doing our first exploration of Antarctica. And Lovecraft, you know, as we were beginning to understand, you know, plate tectonics and things back then. Um, takes the position essentially that Antarctica was not always covered with ice. We all know that's true now. Mm-hmm. That that was a bigger thing. And these people go into deeper into Antarctica, they find this city that's older than the dinosaurs. Yep. And they're in, you know, using 1920s technology um, to get there. 
and they go into this structure. And to me, the structure is very similar to the structure in The Shadow Out of Time. And it's just this huge city they find made out of just old cyclopea stone. And the guys, the people that are there decide to go down inside and look at it. And of course, they run into Yogshagov. They run into other creatures. They run into amazing things carved into the walls that just freak them out. And it ends in a very narrow escape with chases through underground passageways to get out of the city, etc. And it is incredible. And if you are a person that says, oh, that sounds really great, is there a graphic novel version of that? There's an excellent, award-winning graphic novel of At the Mountains of Madness. Oh, that's good news for me. <laughs> uh, I checked it out on my local library, which is where I get pretty much all my graphic novels and comics now because I got sick of dropping so much money. Uh, and it was real well done in the way they drew it. And I thought the monster depictions were pretty good. Uh, At the Mountains of Madness is kind of like is to the cinematic world kind of like Dune was, but almost back when Joe Dorsky was looking at Dune. And if anyone's seen that documentary, I hasn't seen the Joe Dorsky's Dune documentary. I highly recommend it. It's not a movie that was never made. And I've seen some good movies, never made documentaries like The Man of La Mancha and a couple other ones, but this one is fabulous. He couldn't have made them. It was going to be 14 hours long. It cost $50 million. Let's take a little aside right now and talk about Dune. What what did you think of the movie Dune? I loved it. I've seen it five times. Okay, so the the new version. I'm talking about the 2021 version just for the audience. So you I reread the book, and um, I liked it. You know, the Sci-Fi Channel did a a miniseries on it a while back where they followed the book exactly. Yeah, even though it had William Hurt in it, it was okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, I loved the book, the movie. Um, you know, my only problem with the first part of the movie was Zendaya, Zendaya, Zendaya to me, like John Wayne is John Wayne is John Wayne is John Wayne. Um, she never seems, she seems to just play Zendaya to me. Um, but then again, I just recently finished the book and I went, you know, I probably would have picked her for the pick for the character Chani too. Well, she was barely in it, so uh, you know. I guess the the next part she'll play a more prominent role. Right, and then um, Duncan Idaho. That's the only person, but you know he did a good job. But see, I'm so in love with Dune and read so much Dune that I got Emperor of Dune later when Duncan Idaho keeps getting remade. And I, I'll get too. I, I get too deep. I just think um, the book is so much better than any adaptation on any screen. So, yeah, I just thought it was fabulous. I, I loved it. Um, where was I? How did I end up on Dune? Uh, it was my fault. Um, but you said something about Dune, but uh, you were talking about you had just read oh. the Mountains of Madness and the okay. graphic novel, so, but you hadn't. Uh, you know. That's where I was going. Yes. So, um, you know, there were people who have been wanting to make a movie out of. Um, at the Mountains of Madness forever. But no one's ever been able to come up with a way to make it that wasn't just ridiculously expensive and that the studios would believe would work. 
um, because it's such a gothic horror story full of just the foreboding as opposed to jump scares. Right. There are some jump scares, but it's more of a foreboding kind of experience. And Benicio Del Toro has gotten the green light. So I'm very, very excited. Kind of like when I found out that uh, Villeneuve got the green light for Rodney Do with Rama. Very, very excited. Well, the, I mean, those have been, I mean, you have your malignance and your Halloween kills type of jump scare movies still there, but most of the horror movies that are getting any play now are sort of like you're The Witch and Midsommar and Hereditary, uh, even like Insidious, which are, uh, you know, they have a couple jump scares in them, but, but for the most part, it is sort of this, these slow builds, almost old time, almost like 70s and 80s storytelling. So that, that's sort of in vogue now. Um, you know, uh, the A24 studio, studio and, and Edgar's uh, Antlers was, was sort of a slow burn, uh, you know, very reminiscent of an 80s movie. So uh, that, that, that's sort of hip now. So cool. Antlers, is, is that is that the one with the little kid? With the... No. Uh, Antlers has... Kristen Dunst and a real-life husband. I never remember his name, but he was in Fargo. He was in Power of the Dog. He was in that Black Mirror where he was the James Kirk character. Uh, anyway, it doesn't matter. Uh, it, it's about Wendigo. Okay. So. Maybe there was a kid. I, I don't remember the kid. I remember I remember the fat guy and Wendigo. <laughs> well, I find The Shadow Out of Time, Call of Dulu, and At the Mountains of Madness to be the biggest oh, one. Bye-bye. Can, can, I realize, audience, Kirsten Dunst wasn't in it. That's her husband. I think it was Carrie Williams, who, who was from the Americans. I mean, but she might as well be Kirsten Dunst. I, I'm not even sure who was in it, to be honest. It was a good movie. It was okay. Uh, so those are the biggest ones to me in terms of scope for people making them, which is why the person who made the call of and did it the way they did. Um, I am really, really hoping that Del Toro finally gets around to making the movie because I think it's going to be bad for us. Yeah, that sounds really um, cool. I'm, I'm I'm now looking forward to that too because uh, aside from superhero movies, I'm not really all that interested in a whole lot of movies that I at least am aware of coming out. Now, what has the whole Thulu thing come to today? Well, there is a wonderful show on YouTube where uh, someone has a Thulu hand puppet and it answers your questions, <laughs> kind of like Dear Abby. And, you know, everyone's so like, you know, don't bother me with that. I have a creature from dust, depths of space and time. But every, essentially, the advice at the very end is I will devour your soul. And, uh, you know, any hand puppet that's going to devour your soul, I'm all for. Me too. So, I just have to warn the puppet that it'd be a light snack in my case. The deal with reading Lovecraft is that you have to be able to get used to the rhythm and the way that things were written back then. The slow moving and the incredibly large vocabulary. And I find it worth it. I enjoy it. I know some people find it hard to wade through some of the stories. So the recommendations I'm going to make at this time are 
if you are a person that is a, I don't want to read too much, I don't want it to be too full of long, long, long descriptions, um, I would recommend The Rats in the Walls. I would recommend The Call of Thulu. Um, I would recommend A Shadow Over Innsmouth to anyone purely because, oh, that's the thing I never did. The Shadow Out of Innsmouth was remade. <laughs> and it's a terrible movie from the 70s starring Doug McClure called Humanoids from the Deep. Ah, uh, Doug McClure. He's one of the, the trifecta of the Holy Grade C movies. I mean, back oh, then they were great. Back then they were A movies and B movies. So he was, so there was him, Christopher George, and John Saxon, uh, who later on found a little bit of legitimacy when he found his way in Melrose Place and a few other things. But those, those are the holy trinity of your, of your grade B actors. God, I love John Saxon. Yeah, but anyway, stuff to love. I digress. The and you know they're great C movies because you know it made him Roger. Corman, That's almost right. exclusively. Oh, and Roger Corman, you know, he, Death Race 2000, Roger Corman. Mm-hmm. Humanoids for the Deep, Roger Corman. Gratuitous nudity, nudity Roger, Roger Corman. Corman. Right. And so, um, literally, if you read The Call of Thulu, not The Call of Thulu, The Shout Out of Innsmouth, you'll realize, no, we don't have the decaying town and all of this, but it's the same Humanoids for the Deep, but this time they want our women. Um, <laughs> uh, and I recommend it highly purely because it is the book, the story upon which so many things we've seen are based. And sometimes when you go back to the original source material, and it's been done 50 million times since then, it's hard to really enjoy the original source material because you already know it's coming. And you know what's coming Every second of the shadow reads about, and you just go and bring it on, bring it on, yeah. bring it on, bring it on. Uh, the game looks really interesting. Uh, there's an interactive um, online movie of it where you choose which way to go and do stuff. <laughs> uh, there's an interact. There's an online horror animation, kind of like sci-fi movie, sci-fi channel movie level of CGI. Um, of it. Um, there is a card game that people think that think is wonderful. I don't know enough people that are just using me to play these games with. I try to talk my wife into it, but I fail miserably on a regular basis. Just join a Facebook or Twitter group. You'll meet the, all the geeks you want. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm almost worried about that. You should be. There's, there's, there's a lot of downside with those things. I, I, I have um, a question for you. Where did the giant bat-winged, you know, octopus-faced version of Cthulhu or Thulu that we know so well come from? Well, if you read the description in The Call of Thulu, and you read the description of him in, um, there's another story. The tentacles, the bat wings, it's all there. I remember the description was that so big filled the sky with red eyes piercing, you know, through the the rest of it. I I, I mean, yeah, I, I don't I don't know that the wings were necessarily bat wings. I remember wings, but they were so big they filled the sky. To, but 
all right, I'll, I'll, I'll take your word for it that, that, it, that it's in there. Because that's good. I'd rather it be actually in there. That it, didn't, it didn't come from nowhere and, you know, absorbs my mind and is stolen. Because I, I went back and actually read that for that reason at one point when I was looking at the different pictures because I was had a clear back for my phone and I was going to cut out a picture and put it in between the back of my phone and the clear case. Yeah, I'm always offended, though, when it's like this cartoonish head with these little baby cherub oh, yeah. wings. Uh, no, this is a giant titan that, that defies the scope of size that we can comprehend. Well, the one that uh, I used for my phone for that period, he's towering over a lighthouse, so it looks pretty cool. Um, on the side, I had that as my had Godzilla on the back of my phone with the Godzilla roar from the original movie is my ring. And I, whenever I left my phone somewhere, I never had to prove anything. They'd be like, I, I left my phone. Really, what does it look like? Go, it looks like Godzilla. And if you dial this number, it'll sound like it. Like, oh, yeah, we have your phone. <laughs> yeah, there you go. There it is. Very Emory, that's for sure. Um, for those who don't know, uh, you know, obviously you can go back and check out six, episode 64, but I, I've known Emory probably since the. the turn of uh, this century um, through a, uh, a law group, a law trade group. Um, we're both lawyers. Uh, you know, we're from different parts of the world, obviously, but we had overlapping practices in this one area. And so I met him early on. We were, he was a senior member of the young members section of the time, and I was actually a young member at the time. <laughs> it's hard to think of those times. But uh, so we've known each other a while. He's a, he's a lawyer, and he also does a great Khrushchev impression, which is probably very timely these days. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Um, I, I think I've really kind of covered the ground that I had. Uh, all I can say is I have spent many an evening saying, eh, I think tonight would be a good Lovecraft kind of night. And uh, he, to me, is as uh, influential as anyone else in our present culture in terms of horror and some science fiction. And uh, getting to know him and what he wrote really puts us in a good place in terms of understanding um, where our fiction has grown from and where it's going. And uh, I just, I highly recommend it to anyone. Um, he, in terms of short stories, I think is one of the best. Him, Poe, and uh, Harlan Ellison are pretty much some of my very favorite short story people ever. Good choices, all of them. Um I hope, my goodness. Do, do you, this is a legal question. I'm not sure you know the answer to it, but is Lovecraft stuff public domain yet? I do not know, but usually when you can buy the edition of Barnes and Noble with everything he wrote for 1995, it's in the public domain. Yeah, I mean, he, he passed away when? Uh, he died in, I had that down here in 19, hold on one second. It's usually like a life of the author plus 75 years. I mean, it, 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 changed. it, changed. it was less time before he died, but... Well, 1937 is when he died. Okay, so it may not be public domain just yet, but it will be... It, it, it's, I believe it is public domain, um, and I believe partly just because I don't think anybody really cared who owned it. I don't think there was any estate. 
there really wasn't anyone. I mean, he died alone and impoverished. <laughs> well, I'm sure the, I'm sure you know lots of artists, family have done genealogies after after their their the artists and their family became wealthy. But I mean, I'm I'm not about to make a movie or anything. I just. Uh, uh, whatever it is, it's yeah, very close to see the already public domain or is coming up very close. But usually you can just Google is something public domain and you'll find the answer. But I think last time I checked, it was 1935. So, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're getting there pretty close, which means there's probably going to be an explosion of properties out there. So some better than others. Hopefully this Del Toro one will be uh, sensational, live up to your expectations. All right. Well, I thank you so much. You're a fount of information. For those of you who are a little bit timid in tackling books, I get it, especially with heavy language. I get it. I'm as lazy as any of you out there, probably more so. Um, I would commend you to the podcast Fictional for the Call of the Cthulhu. And you can listen to it. And you can, if it sort of haunts you and you find it strangely creepy and, and, and strangely interesting, even though you're not exactly sure why, then read um because that's what it's supposed to do and that's the same feeling you're going to get from the book in several books i haven't read them all like emory has i probably read uh just just the the one i've listened to a few others but they always sort of give me that 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 goosebumps feel which i i love and just uh I, I should read but i don't and when i read it's usually to read the books of guests on this show, um, which, which I don't mind doing, except I, I only have a limited capacity for reading um, <laughs> and time in general. Plus, those of you know, I've got a wrestling podcast, which means I have to watch anywhere from 12 to 5,000 hours of wrestling a week. Um, so my my time is, uh, is filled with an important, important um, people in underwear or fake fighting. So there you go. Um, Emery? I, I thank you for that. I, I I remember you're a pro wrestling fan too, right? A big one, huh? Uh, well, yes and no. Um, I was when I was much younger. Um, like 53? Used, used to watch Georgia Championship Wrestling with Gordon Soley. Sure. As, and uh, I have, you know, before he died, I did eat at Abdullah the Butcher's house and ribs and Chinese food. Um, so, Yes. And I will turn it on and watch it just randomly. And my wife will walk in the room and go, what the hell are you doing? I'm going, Alan. About every six months, I watch a thing of wrestling. And I Good. enjoy it. Who's your favorite wrestler right now? I don't know who any of them are. Perfect. That's exactly right. That's what the people want to hear. So Undertaker, I like him. Sure. Uh, he's, he's retired, but okay. Uh, I mean, no one ever really retires from wrestling, but that's, that's a good poll. Very creepy. Very, very on brand. Very on brand. So, folks, go out there, listen to some Lovecraft, or if you want to tackle it, read some Lovecraft, maybe watch some of those movies. Hope you got a lot out of this show. I know I did. Uh, I've been very curious about more of the Lovecraft universe uh, besides what I've sort of dipped my toes into. And, and now I sort of want to dip my, dip my legs into it a little bit more. That sounded creepy too. Um, all right. Thanks all for being with the Garden of Doom. Thank you, Emery, once again for joining us. Those of you, uh, please rate, review, give five stars, do it on Apple and Spotify if you've got a moment. Tell your friends, share the show. It's sort, of, it's sort of genre defined. So referrals really help the audience. Reviews really help the algorithms. 
And I think that's all I've got. You have anything that you want to say to the good folks? Any anything you want to promote or put forward or let them know how to find you? Or would you rather just be left alone? Leave it alone. Yeah, that, that's fair. Once again, thank you to rock and roll star, music teacher extraordinaire, and wrestling entrance theme composer John Kiernan and, and Amber Rodriguez, wrestler, for consenting to allowing their song to be the outro music here. Many thanks to them. And check out his stuff and check out her stuff and uh, support them if you're so inclined. Again, I thank you all for being part of Garden of Doom and welcome in next week. Trust me, I'm a professional. Easter at Coles. And to help make your Easter shopping easier, we've added thousands of extra home delivery windows and thousands of extra click and collect windows. Shop online at coles.com.au.